In 2015, a jury found that Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams had plagiarized their worldwide number one smash, Blurred Lines, from the song that everyone agrees inspired it, Marvin, Ni- Marvin Gaye's 1977 disco hit, Got to Give It Up. Much debate ensued in the music industry over whether that jury, or the judge who sent the case to trial, or the relatives overseeing Gaye's estate who'd filed the lawsuit, understood anything about music composition or copyright. It was the first time that songwriters were found liable for borrowing elements like groove, arrangement, and feel, rather than more concrete benchmarks like melody and chord progression. Thanks, Obama. Uh, to be fair, when I first heard this song, I assumed it was a new version of the Marvin Gaye song. But you know nothing about music. Yeah, no, we've established fair. that over the course of this podcast. Anyway, you guys are jerks. <laughs> Anyway, there was some measure of rejoicing among non-music nerds over the outcome of this case, since the internet thinks that Robin Thicke is a big dick, and that the lyrics of this song are vaguely rapey. Although they could also be construed as kind of anti-slut-shaming? I don't know. Not for me to debate, really, in in this uh, limited format. Anyway, that's for the internet to decide. That's for the internet to decide. Uh, And Robin Thicke didn't really help his own cause. He came off as kind of a big douchebag at trial. His testimony was kind of like... He he seemed real wishy-washy about... How the song had actually been written, it kind of it, it seemed like he was too evasive, and he also wasn't likable. So now a whole generation of musicians has to wonder whether Robin Thicke's fuck-ups will result in them getting sued by the estates of their heroes every time they try to put their own twist on a pre-existing idea or style. Well, hey, maybe they'll come up with new stuff. Maybe it's not so bad. That no, okay, no. it's not gonna happen. <laughs> As of this podcast recording, Thick and Williams had filed an appeal trying to head off this dystopian future in which homage has been outlawed. Come on, Trump, you can do it. Come on, make it happen. But if this principle ends up holding up in court, man, are we going to see a lot of Motown-inspired songwriters looking over their shoulders? Because if all it takes to sue for millions in damages is copying the groove, the arrangement, and the feel of a classic Motown hit, then the post-baby boomer pop landscape will be strewn with the rubble of ruined retirement funds because everybody on today's countdown will be wide open to legal challenges from angry Motown artists singing a hearty refrain of money, that's what I want. Gentlemen, welcome to the magical land of homage. We're taking a trip to its capital city, Fotown. This is Beyond Yacht Rock, the podcast. It is. We're a podcast that makes up a new musical musical genre every week and counts down the top hits in that genre. My name is J.D. Riznar. You are. I'm Hunter Stair. I'm Hollywood Steve in the captain's chair today. And aloha day from Honolulu. Hey, everybody. How are things in Honolulu today? Uh, pretty good. I'm uh, eating some turkey and cheese and pineapple. Just like Hawaiians. Yep. That's what they do. It's like how Californians put avocado on everything. That's what we do. Because we invented the term Yacht Rock, we like to throw a bone to the Yacht Rock genre every episode, and this song is no exception to a Yacht Rock song being thrown at Yacht Rock fans. 100% accurate so far on the show. This is uh, Pablo Cruz, Paradise, parentheses, Let Me Take You Into, end parentheses, (laughs) from 1981. Um, Pablo Cruz, I always thought... 
before we got too deep into this podcast that Pablo Cruz was not on the boat because they were they were outside of the scene and two on the nose. But I was a dumbass because this fucking band, this Pablo Cruz, they are too smooth to ignore sometimes. And that logo, it's the best logo in pop music history, I gotta say. It's a graphic design delight. But they nail it here. They nail it, fellas. You know, when I first heard their song, You're Out to Lose, co-written by Micah McDonald, complete with a fake Micah McDonald background vocal by lead singer Steve Jenkins, uh, that was all the connection I needed to consider their music through the ears of a yachtsman. They passed the salt test. Also, Steve Piccaro programmed the synths on that World Away album. But this isn't from Worlds Away. This is from their next album, Reflector, from 1981. Hey, there's our first first strike against us. This uh, this was the next album after their next album. Oh. Uh, they had 1979's Part of the Game uh, was was next, and it still had Steve on synth. Maybe that was the one Steve played synth on. I, I no, they were both. I think okay. they were both. Yeah. So, Pablo Cruz is not a dude. Pablo Cruz is the name of a band led by David Jenkins, and, he, and there's some other guys, none of them named Pablo. But they really rock, they really rock the yacht hard on this one. David Jenkins, by the way, the only non-Californian in Pablo Cruz, he's from Ypsilanti, Michigan, he immigrated to California. Like us, we're immigrants, you see, because Michigan looks like a mitt. Yeah. It actually looks like a mitt trying to reach up and grab a running rabbit. Yeah, or what is off Canada. Yeah. 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 And or, Michigan's known for uh, exporting uh, talent. Yes, they export a lot of talent because there's not very many avenues for it to... Uh, uh, find expression there. Uh, but we're talking about Pablo Cruz and this here song. Then Paris. I can dig it. <laughs> this, <laughs> here's, this delay, this delay is something. Just a few seconds and it ruins everything. But I still love you, Dave. Uh, and I am a fan of all of you. So this here song, Paradise, Let Me Take You Into, is a delight. It's got rock and electric guitar. It's got jazz and R&B elements. That's what you need. Uh-huh. It's got a hint of prettied up Steely Dan musical inspiration, a nice driving beat, a guitar noodling throughout. It sounds right. I love finding yacht jams that rock a little harder, and this is one of them. Pablo Cruz had a few. Uh, I, I think they'll never be... Uber yachting. Right. Um, they always have the taint of Frisco on Frisco them. Frisco taint. <laughs> uh, you know, but they work hard enough to get on the boat, which a lot of those uh, Frisco taints didn't do. Uh, this album, though, was partially done in Miami. Uh, besides that usual Sausalito sound, Dave. Oh, Sausalito! <laughs> oh, it's somebody who's taking it's a bite like of the sandwich. Hey, you got your mouth full of Sausalito there. Come <laughs> here. <laughs> um, I think this song is about a dude trying to get a lady to have sex with him, but he sounds like a dork who took one of those How to Seduce Women seminars. Uh, also, I love, it's like, it's a perfect picture road, it's the color of your dreams. You know, it's like, okay. It's Good pickup line. Tape right there. <laughs> uh, I also love verses that start with the word and, and the last verse of this song starts with the word and. Just my thing. Uh, okay. Steve. No, I was going to say oh. something. Oh, go ahead, Dave. No, go no, ahead. No. no. Go. Okay, swallow and... <laughs> um, 
I had written something about uh, these guys being in the marina, and then JD pointed yeah, there's out too that many they hits. had way too many hits. There's too many hits unless you want to let Jimmy Buffett in the marina. Well, yeah, but yeah. Jimmy Buffett is marina. Right? That's true. Let's be honest. He just sold it out. Yeah. That's what we were talking you guys about. Are, you guys are both stupid. Hey. Stupid guys. He's a, he, Jimmy Buffett's in the faux arena. And this is one of the reasons why I brought up that they recorded this in Miami. Yeah, because they're also marina rock, just like Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> Steve, do you want to talk about Photown? Let's talk about Photown. Ah, oh, listen to that. It's oh, it's so good. This fucking genre is so good. Get used to that because every single song in the countdown is going to sound Sounds just like, like this. Yep. It's like in a, in a couple episodes when we do an all Susudio tribute episode. Oh, you're t- I'm, I'm teasing you're it now. Them. Go ahead, Steve. All right, so after I did the post-Motown show for episode 38, uh, the Richmond-based Yacht Rock tribute band Three Sheets to the Wind asked me on Twitter why I didn't call that genre Fotown, to which I replied, that's a totally different genre, and it is, which is what we're getting into today. Uh, and then Hunter also did his new WAP episode, uh, which has been very popular, a lot of listens for that one. Uh, and he used a song that I'd always thought of as Fotown, and I said to myself, I must begin to draw these distinctions for an eagerly awaiting universe. The wait is over, universe. At long last. Steve, did you come up with his name Fotown by yourself or did someone else? Well, I came up with the name by myself, but I am far from the first person in the world to whom this particular pun has occurred. All right, quick, let's snatch up the trademark and start a band that plays mostly new wop. <laughs> Finally, we're going to cash in. Uh, I, um, I, I'm on UrbanDictionary.com, and it says, Fotown is representative of the genre of music borrowing heavily from the Motown era. Though Motown label helped to spotlight talented African-American artists, Fotown artists are predominantly white. Examples of the Motown artists are Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder. Aretha Franklin was never on Motown. The term was first used in New York City by an, in, an informed music website blogger in 2007. Uh, the examples that he gives are Justin Timberlake, Alicia Keys, and Amy Winehouse's nope. Motown. But this is stupid and wrong. That's correct. Steve is getting it right today. Goddamn right. This playlist is undoubtedly Fotown, and they don't have to be white. You racist music website blogger in early 2007. <laughs> yeah. Informed my ass. <laughs> um, you, I... You just brought something up that I would like to just go back to. So Aretha- Wait, listen to this fucking bridge. That is a good bridge. Ah, it's so good. So okay, go Aretha ahead. Franklin was never on Motown, but did she have Motown songs, would you say? Like, a stylized. Because these oh, guys I, are never... I, like, I think of her as more, like, Southern. Just even soul. though she was from Michigan. Straight I up soul. Yeah, just, yeah, she had that, like, that gritty... You know, gospel influence. I really need sound. to go back and, re- I, and until you just said that right now, I had no idea that she wasn't on Motown and would be considered. Yeah, a no, she was on Atlantic. Yep. Okay. She was in the Motown era, but not a Motown and artist. From and from Detroit. And those so production. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, okay. Guys, so I finished. I finished my snatch. Okay, great. <laughs> so, uh, when I talk about Fotown in my book. It means you're paying tribute to the enduring, the enduring legacy of Motown by ripping it off. This is Two Hearts by Phil Collins. If I think hard about the Phil Collins catalog, this might be one of my favorites of his. It has that great bridge I just shouted out. Uh, Phil always loved Motown. He's always done homages to American R&B. This is a terrific Motown sound. Like, So why is it not in the countdown? Well, Phil loves Motown so much that he got songwriting legend Lamont Dozier to co-write this with him. 
And to me, if you've got Lamont Dozier, it's no longer Fotown. Like, it's half real. It's kind of like the boners I get in my early 40s. It's half real. Gross. That's gross. <laughs> but I, I'd like to report at 39, my boners are still very oh, hard. Oh, that's great. And they rather impress me sometimes. Oh, look, good. Look at what yeah. What the heck? And I'd like to report at 41, JD's telling the truth about his boners. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. I got a doctor's appointment coming up. Okay, so with with most Fotown... Oh, sorry. He's going to get a boner helper. It's gross. I don't know. I don't know. The implication is gross to me. You but you should. But you should. But we need to legislate against that because <laughs> men should not have control of their sexual bodies. That's, yeah, exactly. that's correct. All right. Go ahead, Steve. I'm uh, not going to pay for Steve's boner pills. I still got a good boner. <laughs> it's still fine. I don't want that going on my insurance as an extra I'd, half a cent. I'd, JD, I'd call it great. Thank you. <laughs> sorry, Steve. <laughs> so, with most uh, Fotown, there's a very strong element of, hey, look what I can do. I've done my homework. I know the greats. Not only do I know the classics, I can pull that style off myself. And many of these people, not all, but many of these people are white guys trying to prove something. So, to be clear, Fotown is not Motown covers. So no, like, it's not covers. Like I'm Mike, doing all originals. Yeah. Michael McDonald's terrible Motown albums are not Fotown. <laughs> They're just the sad wail of a former superstar grasping at the slick walls of irrelevance. Right. It's like a blue-eyed soul guy trying to do his version of like a Rod Stewart Great American Songbook type album. It's, it's, it's toned down oldies for old people. Um... So the best Fotown is quickly identifiable as a Motown ripoff tribute. But how exactly do we identify this beautiful beast in the wild? By starting the countdown! No, let's take it way back. Let's take it way back. To the Motown era. To the actual Motown era. Listen to that bass line. Hear that bounce? So Motown encompassed a pretty wide variety of grooves, arrangements, and feels, but if there's one Motown song that became easy shorthand for what we know as the Motown song, it's this one right here. It's one that Phil himself covered during his divorce corps period. You Can't Hurry Love by the Supremes. Now, part of the genius of Motown is that the session musicians they employed were all jazz-trained, way overqualified to just be performing on pop records. And one hallmark of that sound is the bass player, James Jamerson. Sometimes you'll hear very melodic walking bass lines from him. In this case, you'll hear that signature Motown bounce. And this rhythm gets ripped off a lot. And if I hadn't cut out a bunch of sound-alike tracks, we could have had the vast majority of this playlist just start out going do-do-do-do-do-do-do. We'll hear that a few times today anyway. At least one. And the other signature element I want to highlight is the strong, strong backbeat. Heavy, heavy emphasis, hard accents on the two and four of each measure. And it's not just because of the drummer. Um, we talked recently in one of the Yadder Yacht episodes about guitarist Wawa Watson. We kind of made fun of him for being nicknamed after what he sounded like. So today, gentlemen, I want to introduce you, if you're not familiar, to Motown session guitarist Eddie Chank Willis. Good old Chank used his guitar like a percussion instrument, played those chordal accents on the two and four to pound home that backbeat. And that's what they sound like. Chank, 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 chank. And more than anything else today, we're going to hear a lot of that chanking guitar on the two and four. Motown, more like onomatopoeia nickname town. hey <laughs> It's funny because it's accurate. Uh, this Motown sound is absolutely audacious because when you think about 
how empty music sounded just a year or two earlier than when this came out in 1966. This is so rich and layered and interesting. It's it's like a sonic arms race between Motown and the Beatles. I'd like to add, too, before we kick this off, I, I might never make a playlist that's this compulsively listenable again, so enjoy it while it lasts. I've been listening to this obsessively for like two months now. It's pretty great. It's a very good playlist. Good job, Steve. Thank you. Uh, our thousands of loyal listeners are going to have a great weekend, although I wrote that before I listened to the whole list. It does get a little repetitive toward the end. Yeah. I, will, I will say. I, uh, I just went out to get my phone because while we were listening to that Phil Collins Two Hearts song, I, was, I couldn't remember if that was the song where he wrestled the ultimate warrior in. And it was. <laughs> Phil Collins? Yeah, in the music video, he wrestled the <laughs> ultimate warrior great. in that song. You ready for a countdown? Let's do it. Ten. Hey, I think these guys use a Pro Tools filter that makes you sound oldie time and Motowny. <laughs> so, uh, when I searched the word Twitter for Fotown, to try and remember which user had asked me about it, uh, the band that turned up most often in relation to that term was Fits in the Tantrums. And this is their song, Money Grabber, kind of their break, their breakthrough initial hit. Uh, as we Yacht Rock dudes know, the popular application of a term does not always match its exact definition, but in this case, I think it fits. I think this is a good, pretty good Fotown song. <laughs> it's, you know, it's almost like these guys use a time machine to record this on the original equipment. FYI, I think that it's dumb, if you didn't notice by my sarcasm, to make music that sounds like the original music. I think that's why I never want Yacht Rock to come back, because when it's attempted, it usually sucks. That said, I love this song. Uh, the only new Yacht Rock song I've ever liked was Thundercat because it forged new ground while staying true to the original. But this is just a ripoff. But I love this song. I think that forging new ground thing makes a Fotown song sound better. And the le the less you travel, the less you go off on your own a little bit, the, I think the worse it sounds. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, we'll uh, yeah, bring that out as we go through I, these. I'm I'm also talking out of my butt. Trying well, to come up with things to say. I just don't think it's worthwhile to do a song if you don't like put at least a new spin on it in some way. Oh, you're saying it's better when you put a new spin yes, on it. Yes. Oh, I thought you were saying that like the more the more close you stay to the Motown. No, the okay, further okay. you go, then wander I, off. Then I agree with yeah. you, and I was, you was talking it, out of you my mouth. Make it your own. So with fits in the tantrums, you can easily hear the retro soul influence, but is it specifically Motown? And like the modern day indie production touches threw me off a little bit, but you do hear more of the Motown coming out in the version they did with Daryl Hall on Live at Daryl's House. Uh, and this is also from their debut album, Picking Up the Pieces from 2010, which they recorded by themselves in their living room. Now the Motown studio in Detroit was not much bigger than a standard living room, despite how most of us think of the the polish and sophistication of those records. Like, you picture this fucking orchestra, but it's not it. And so we can hear a faint echo of those long-forgotten DIY roots in this song. And uh, another reason this doesn't quite sound like straight-up Motown on first listen, there's no guitars in this band. Ugh. There's no better way for me to reinforce the influence of Eddie Chank Willis than by starting the show with a band that completely ignores him. Keyboards on this song by Jeremy Tinkle Rudzma. Modern music hates electric guitar. I hate you, modern music. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't understand. Am I wrong in thinking that? No, no you're not wrong. It's been a it's been a great uh, it's been a big move away from guitar music. And if in there a lot is guitar, it's acoustic guitar and it's neutered. 
Yes. Or electric guitar, and it's completely yeah, neutered. because indie musicians are afraid to fuck. <laughs> That's what it boils down to. Uh, uh, fits in the tangent, I'll just, real quick, they're a blue-eyed soul group based in Los Angeles, led by singer Michael Fitzpatrick. Oh, sorry, this is, a. Uh, you it's added my, nicknames oh, yeah. to, to be what they sound I'm like. I'm on a P of nicknames. <laughs> yeah. Michael Lolo Fitzpatrick. And uh, co-starring female vocalist... Noel Lalalaskegs. They played their first gig in December 2008. Less than a year later, we're opening for Maroon 5 after Adam, or sorry, Adam, Adam Lane Farnham looking Levine heard about them from his tattoo artist, Harley O'Hurley. Oh, <laughs> I'm impressed that you looked that up. <laughs> we should uh, all go to Adam Levine's tattoo artist and tell him about Yacht Rock. Maybe we could open for Maroon 5 too now that we have experience as opening acts. Oh, yeah, we're a terrific opening act. <laughs> we'll come out on stage, talk about math. It'd <laughs> yeah. be great. Has uh, everybody here been to the, um, uh, the Motown Museum? I've never been to the Motown yeah. Museum. It's, it's pretty remarkable, and Steve's right. The uh, the recording studio was literally a garage. I've heard like it's a, amazing. Yeah, it's about the size of a four-car garage uh, that they turned into a recording studio, so it does have that DIY feel, and it kind of comes across. It's probably, a three, it's probably a three-car garage, as Dave said he was in. Okay, moving. Well, it's, it's a two-car garage, but tandem. Oh, okay. We all know that number nine is the uh, traditional punk rock slot in these shows, so here's The Clash uh, with their tribute to the studio known as Hitsville USA. This is Hitsville UK. It appeared on their triple album Sandinista, which we finally get to discuss on this here podcast. I thought The Clash was a punk band. What's this shit? <laughs> well, like, a lot of people said that when yeah, Sandinista yeah, came yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, just, you just gave a very uh, standard review for Sandinista. <laughs> I, you know, there's no... But it's like punk and Motown are both exciting. Like, this sounds like Motown on barbiturates. It's also why I put it down at number nine. Uh, Sandinista is an important reference point for the four of us here in this room. Well, Dave isn't in the room, but... It's be, it, it over the years it became shorthand for Hunter, like people like somebody else. So what's Hunter like? Oh well, he can be a bit of a contrarian. Like oh, how do you mean? Well, he thinks Sandinista is the best Clash album. Oh, I see. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, but a lot of people found out about me through lies because I never fucking said that. <laughs> uh, those are 100% Dave's words, I'm sure. But uh, whatever, I'll wear it. I, all I said is that I like Sandinista, but but I suck and I'm an asshole, right? So fuck it, it's fine. Eat a dick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get it. Said he Piece it was of shit. Best album. Well, what did you say, Dave? Was... Dave? I what never you said that he. Can you hear me? Yes, it's just the delay. Go for it. I never said that he thought it was their best album. I said he thought it was a good album. And he's partially right, because out of the three albums worth of songs they put out on Sandinista, you could almost get one good album out of it. And it's an ex excellent example of how important it is to edit your content. And I find it very interesting that you were the one that brought this to our attention, Steve. I like to make sure my episodes are very thoroughly researched, Dave. But if you take the album as a whole, you got a score of about 28 to 30%, not a passing grade. Uh, yeah, and I basically said the exact same thing Dave said about this album. Uh, there's a good album in it. Um, I'd even say a double album in there, uh, but, a but a lot of filter. 
or filler, excuse me. And in in my opinion, it's all worth it for somebody got murdered. Um, I'm just not a fucking drama queen acting like Stan and Issa killed the uh, class in the punk. Uh, the punk. Uh, I tend to give music more of a chance and appreciate the creative failures, even if I don't like it on the first lin- listen. Hence my love for Chinese democracy. Uh, also, I'm not afraid of voicing an unpopular opinion, like telling you all that I love Chinese democracy. Why do you think it's the and best Guns N' Roses album, Hunter? I never said that up. <laughs> I appreciate that about you, Hunter. That's how we I, became friends. And because I do respect your opinion, I still give Chinese democracy a chance about once every eight or ten months. And I still haven't heard what you do. It's like how I try a raw tomato every so often just to see if I still like it. Spoiler alert, I do not. Uh, but I will say I remember how aghast Dave was when I said I liked Sandinista. And I, I'm, I appreciate that it grew into a nice example of how I'm a dick. <laughs> well, get, get off each other's dicks and let's get back to fun facts because no one knows what you're talking about. What, what are you talking the about? Cla- Steve, the clash is boring. Steve wanted this. Wanted, I, know, I wanted to have this debate air out Steve, of the studio. Steve threw them this Molotov cocktail in for this song. Yeah. Steve is a terrible producer of entertainment. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think my instincts were right on here. So here's my uh, fun Jamie, fact. I'll agree with you. This is on the very boring side of a very excellent band. Thank you. Yeah, but these are one of the songs I liked on San Anissa because it was it was interesting that they would try this as a punk band. It was different, and I and no, I appreciate it's still, it's still a good song. It's just it's no uh, it's not their liveliest. And is if what you like say. and 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 if you don't like reggae, you're probably not going to like San Anissa. Fun facts. So, fun facts. Uh, lead vocals on this song are by guitarist Mick Jones and his girlfriend at the time, actress and singer Ellen Foley, who also did the female vocals on Meatloaf's Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Oh, fun fact. She also might be best known to children of the 80s as the chick who preceded Marky Post as the public oh. defender on the NBC Thursday night sitcom Night Court. Really? Fun fact. Yes. I just watched that a couple nights ago. Oh, I want to... So, Night Court was on the tail end of the unstoppable programming block. <laughs> The NBC Thursday Night Block, you know the Cosby Show, Family Ties, or later yes, my wife Cheers. Up as we were watching, watching it's Night never Court. it's never been a popular choice for syndication. Night Court, with the result that I've barely seen it since I was a kid. So Hunter, how did it hold up? Oh well, okay. Well, here here's the thing. So the actress that you were talking <laughs> about, uh-huh, and the older actress who was uh, later who died and was uh, later replaced by Marsha Warfield, uh, the Marky Post Marsha Warfield era is much better than that early era. That early era is rough, a little rough <laughs> okay. to get through. And uh, that was what my wife said when she was like, "I remember not liking this after the Cosby Show and named all the shows that you just named." So, <laughs> uh, yeah, the early ones not. Don't hold up that well. Later ones, good stuff. Okay, yeah, because I, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. I, I was scared to find out if it would actually hold up all oh, these well, years in adulthood here's later. Here's the thing. Uh, <laughs> the theme song always holds up. Yeah, the theme song and is And that's great. why you watched Night Court. It was because you got to hear that song twice. Beyond Night Court. <laughs> This is Wham! with Freedom. Every good Wham! song is not just good, it's fucking amazing. And Freedom is no exception. Actually, I'd like to argue that every uh, good song is amazing, and that's why it's good songs. Anyway, continue. Eh, some good songs are just good. Some of them are just okay. (laughs) There are grades of good. Anyway, this was the follow-up to The Amazing Careless Whisper, which was the follow-up to The Amazing Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Freedom hit number one in the UK, number three in America. It was a big hit, as it should have been. 
I've forgotten about this song, and I do love it, but I don't hear a lot of Motown in it. Explain yourself, hold, Steve. Hold on. This is like classic. This is the classic Motown drum beat and, like, and basic guitar. I, I don't understand. Are you doing a bit like how Steve pooped on my new up episode? Is that what you're doing? Because that, that guitar is chanking away on the two and four back there. Because if it makes a difference, Dave, um, this is one of the songs I suggested to Steve from my new WAP research. Yeah, Hunter Hunter is the one who got this into the countdown because he reminded me that it existed. Hey, don't get on Dave's nuts. He knows nothing about music. We know that. He's only in the podcast because he likes to buy stuff. You guys want to see a photo of my new guitar? It's a flying no. V. It's real sweet. Oh, Jesus. Also, Steve got was another flying all over Hunter's new WAP, so I wanted to bring that back. New Wop is a very popular episode of this podcast. Uh, so apparently yeah, we did something right. Yeah, but the whole thing right. about you, you're like, I don't get it. I don't <laughs> well, get I didn't it. get it. Oh, so. So, so my instincts on you just being a dick were right. <laughs> exactly. But okay, I did good. get a sweet flying V. I'll send you a photo. Okay, sweet. So I mentioned before that Fotown songs often have the subtext of white guy with something to prove. And very few white guys spent more time trying to prove themselves than George Michael. Uh, he'd said in an interview that this song was the one that made him start to take himself seriously as a writer. He returned to it a couple times later. The organ intro of Faith is actually this melody slowed way the fuck down, which I never realized until I researched this. Uh, and of course, he recorded a new song called Freedom 90. Sounds nothing like this one, about wanting to be taken seriously as an artist instead of a sex object. And unfortunately, after that, that was about the point where his music got to be a lot less fun. His name got to be less fun, too, once he changed it from his original name, which was, and I did not practice this ahead of time, here we go, George Michael's original name was Georgios Kyriakos Panayitou. Actually, it's extremely then, Greek. It was, like, it was like, that was like podcasting on a high wire. And, and then, falling off. And, that sure did. And his second name was George Michaels. <laughs> and then he took the ass off. As we established in the new op episode. Um... George's ultimate white guy with something to prove move, though, was his 1987 duet with Aretha Franklin on I Knew You Were Waiting For Me. Very few singers, let alone white British dudes perceived as teeny bopper idols, have the pipes to hold their own next to Aretha, and George managed to pull it off very, very well, and thus began his near-constant struggle to prove his creative legitimacy, which extended for most of the rest of his career and got more and more overt as the years went by, like I was saying about Freedom 90. It was kind of a, a musical equivalent of, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio recently just only taking these blatant Oscar bait roles, like trying desperately to prove he's not just a pretty boy and he should be taken very, very seriously indeed. I never thought Leo was that pretty. You didn't? A lot of people yeah, did. Know. There's no, there's no Peter Allen. <laughs> well, few of us are. You know, it did it for George Michael. It was wham rap. That was George Michael's great shame. <laughs> yeah, well, he was always, white guy with something to prove. He was always punching. He was always punching at that wham rap. He never should have done wham rap. You know, I just read an article that the Major Crimes Division is investigating his death right now. I guarantee they'll find out it was wham rap. He died of wham rap. I, you know, I'm li as I'm listening to this song about sort of straying off the path. I don't think he does, but his, his unique, sassy Britishness of this era, I think, was enough to do it. Like, it doesn't, he doesn't sound like a Motown singer. This sounds like a Motown song, and together it sounds... It works. Yeah, yeah it's a twist. This is like how he put more of a twist on the, the doo-wop stuff on Wake Me Up Before Absolutely. You Go-Go. And 
speaking of no twist whatsoever. <laughs> yes. Uh, here's another modern era retro soul revivalist. Uh, this is Meyer Hawthorne. He hails from a town that half of us once called home, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Home of the University of Michigan. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. And the adopted home of the All Music Guide, which Man. started in my hometown of Big Rapids. <laughs> That's the Internet's largest online music database, which still not enough people know about because it took them so long to figure out how to get their search results into Google, by which time the site had already been buried under a pile of annoying pop-up ads. Anyway, go read my shit there. Okay, I will. They hire perverts. The, the odd thing is, not all the record is as awful as it's cracked up to be. Ice's mic technique is actually strong. <laughs> Stronger and more nimble than MC Hammer. Well, it is. And he really tries earnestly to show the skills he does have. That's Steve Huey on Vanilla Ice's To the Extreme. <laughs> I mean, how else do you review? Listen, <laughs> Vanilla Ice versus MC Hammer. Steve wrote that in 1991, right after it dropped. <laughs> no, I, I, I wrote that, that uh, a lot later than that. Because <laughs> oh. I had to listen. I listened to both of those albums and I was like, Hammer can't even rap. I mean, Vanilla Ice deserves, the, you know, his shitty reputation, but he's still better than MC Hammer. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> back to Meyer Hawthorne. He was born Andrew Cohen, but switched to something less Jewish when he decided to perform soul music. Meyer is his middle name, and Hawthorne is the street he grew up on. So basically, the formula for his stage name is normally the one you use when you get into porn. I don't think that's a real formula. It's just a game we learned in high school. But, but you know, it's, it's the play. cliche you already, you always hear about it, right? Yeah, but I've also heard that you, your first pet works for your first name. So that would make me either Chi Chi Hatfield or Sparky 575 East <laughs> or Bastard Achea Stony Brook, depending on which pet middle name or street that's, I use. That's your wife's uh, maiden name there, your pet name. Is it now your yeah, middle that's name? Also, that's, no, that's my middle name. I changed when we got married. That's that's the B. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yep. Um, Pulled the old uh, John Ono Lennon. Uh, my name would have been Daniel Brookfield or Foodoo Lambert. Either way, it sounds like a dude with a big schlong. What about you guys? Yeah, mine was uh, Big Dick the Huge Cock. <laughs> I had weird pet names. Yeah. Uh, mine lived on a weird street. <laughs> mine would have been Epi Sue Stephen Court. <laughs> okay. Which is not much of a porn alias because it's got my real name in it. I'm, St I'm Steven and I grew up on Stephen Court. Uh, so, the, this, oh, this song is called The Walk. It was uh, one of his bigger, his most popular songs. Uh, it was the first single from his second album, How Do You Do, from 2011. It's the closest thing he's had to a genuine, actual mainstream hit, which is to say it got onto a couple of Billboard charts that are not the main pop chart. Is this a song with the video of people dancing from an old Detroit dance show? Because that's a great video. I think it's Mayor Hoffman, no, whether it's this song no, or not. No, I watched this video. It's like it's like an action movie, like a, a Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Oh, thing. oh it's dumb. He's, he's like him and a, a model are shooting he, at each he's other. Got, he's got a Fotown song, though, that's like Detroit people in the 70s dancing on this local show, and it's really cool. Uh, so this song feels like he's running over a well-worn path to me. Yeah, it's it's very much the classic Motown style groove, and the only real twist he puts on it is like, oh, I'm a little bit irreverent. I'm gonna put a few swears in this. Ah, so it's like a, it's a uh, shitty fucking attitude. No swears in Motown. Uh, there's no swears in Motown, so this is like a hilarious Dan band send up. <laughs> I guess. Well, um, well, we'd listen to this song a lot around Junior when when like when he was three years old, and one time completely out of the blue. Out of the context of anything, he told my mom that she had a shitty, shitty fucking attitude. 
<laughs> did, did she? Not a, totally out of context. All right. yeah. uh, uh, like you, like you mentioned, JD, this is not the only Fotown song in in Meyer Hawthorne's catalog. In particular, check out "Your Easy Love" and "Ain't Pleasing Nothing" from his debut album. It's one of the songs he performed during his appearance on Live at Daryl's House. Uh, it's got that. It's got that. You can't hurry love. Uh, you know. Uh, easy go-to beat, uh, but you, I, you want you really have to admire Daryl Hall's commitment to getting every modern-day blue-eyed soul singer he can, who's in existence, on his program. Like, here are the boys carrying on my proud legacy. <laughs> I want to give them as much spotlight as I can. I've never seen the show, but I assume it goes a little like this. Oh, that's a good song. It reminds me when I did this. <laughs> it always starts with, My name is Daryl Hall. You gotta be a white soul singer. You gotta like wine to come over to Daryl's house. Now let's cook some dinner in the intermission. Six. All right. There was no shortage of slickly produced blue-eyed soul in the New Wave era. Culture Club was a big part of that. This is their song, Church of the Poison Mind. Uh, I don't think Boy George really gets his due as a blue-eyed soul singer because, you know, I think maybe the image took a lot more precedence over that. You know, it's, And it's really a shame because he, he does have beautiful blue eyes. He really does. He's a beautiful man. Uh, so this, well, is, this is the first song I thought of when you t- tried to hijack New Up. Uh, and introduced uh, Photown. I was like, man, I need to suggest this song to my friend Steve. But alas, it was already on your list. See, great minds are thinking alike on this one. Uh, so Boy George was gay and addicted to drugs, neither of which were things you were supposed to be in Ronald and Nancy Reagan's America. But Culture Club managed to cross over to American audiences anyway. Uh, this song hit the top ten in 1983, not long before Karma Chameleon hit number one. Uh, this almost topped the charts in the UK as well, so it was a pretty decent sized hit. Uh, female vocals on the chorus, which you can hear right now, those are by Helen Terry. She's a singer Boy George met on the London club scene, and she sang on a good chunk of the uh, Culture Club albums. She also did the backing vocals on Phil Collins' Ache song, Take Me Home. Ooh, it's a jam. Yeah, it's a super jam. Her solo career never really took off, though, so she started working in TV, and she's now the executive producer of the annual Brit Awards telecast, which are basically the British Grammys, as far as I can tell. Okay, so you know what's... Uh you know, no one talks about when it comes to Boy George. It's it's not a sexuality or drug, drug use or a style. No one ever talks about harmonica. Yeah, it's a recurring theme on Culture Club. What song. the fuck is that all about? I'm like, Huey Lewis, sure, I get it, harmonica. But Boy George? Does he play it himself? And does he play it all the time? And does he give beachers as if it wings were a harmonica? There's more questions than answers here that he's bringing up. I, listen, I don't, I don't think he plays the harmonica. Listen to that. I don't think he plays the harmonica. Just a huge fan of it. <laughs> I love this I found, harmonica I stuff, I found a Twitter guys. post from Mr. George from 2012, and I'm quoting, Doing my first harmonica session. It's very Dylan. Oh, so I hope that I hope that clears it up. So in 2012 was the first year he tried to play the harmonica professionally. Well, as a in a session. Huh. Well, seriously, harmonica. What's the deal with that? It's not bluesy. Anyways, Culture right. Club harmonica is not bluesy, but it's so, a new twist. Yeah, it sure is. 
Uh, may, oh, maybe it's supposed to echo Stevie Wonder a little bit, like little Stevie Wonder in the early days when he was a harmonica player. Sure. Maybe that's maybe that's the reference point. Anyway, so who's in the congregation of the Church of the Poison Mind? When I listen to the lyrics, my guess is androgynous dudes who couldn't be openly gay in the early 80s and were filled with romantic angst and self-loathing, which is what this song sounds to me like it's probably about. I mean, minus androgyny, you've just described every church pretty much. Dude. <laughs> like every fucking church. Look at Mike Pence and tell me that guy, his mind isn't poisoned as fuck. Oh, it definitely is. Experimenting. Yeah. New pack. The Cubs are starting again tonight. Steve's excited. Yeah. What's going on? <gasps> oh. What's going on, guys? Welcome to Motown. That's right. I forgot this had a long intro. Oh God. Oh, you wanted this, to... this intro. It's. Oh. oh Holy right. shit! This is sultry. The H is O. Doesn't that make that Hotown? Yeah. Sure. Ah, uh, this is Detroit's favorite son, Glenn Fry. No, no son more favorite than Glenn Fry. Uh, from the original Beverly Hills Cop, uh, starring young and up-and-coming comedian Edward Murphy. Uh, this song plays at the opening of, uh, of the movie, painting a lovely picture of the D. Uh, car factories, black people, day drinking, more black people, an old white guy, even more black people, more day drinking, burnout buildings, and black people. This ain't no Beverly Hills. Nope, it's Detroit. Uh, Painting a picture of the D. I think, yes, sir. I think everyone knows the tale of Axel Foley. Axwell Foley. <laughs> uh, his best friend and fellow Detroiter is murdered by Beverly Hills rich thug guy thugs. Uh, so he tracks them down and befriends a local PD to take them out. Fantastic movie. I love when Hollywood fetishizes Beverly Hills. Because it's, so, it's such a dumb place. But there's so many... Oh, yeah, it's fucking terrible. There's so many Beverly Hills movies. This is one of the good ones for sure. Um, but I think I saw it 20 years ago. My parents like to tell me how funny it was that the chief swore a lot. Beverly Hills is terrible to drive in. And I always tell people who visit L.A., don't fucking bother going there because it's just a fucking shithole. Yeah. I uh, no, the, the design of it's intentionally bad to keep people out. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't want to go there, so it worked. And so yeah. it's it's interesting. This is a great movie to scare white America from Detroit and bring them to Beverly Hills. Uh, hey, Dave, you have a fun fact about yeah, these locations? Yeah, fun fact for all you location buffs out there. <laughs> the, Detroit, the Detroit police station in the film is the same Chicago police station from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's right, it's L.A.'s own Southwest bag, located just west of the old 6th Street Bridge in the Arts District. Wow! You can also see it as a human trafficking office on upcoming episodes of The Fosters, <laughs> now airing on Freeform, previously ABC Family. Wow, our, our location buffs are really going to have a field day with that one. They're just, yes. they're just cranking it right now. Uh, it was originally an action movie called Beverly Drive about a cop from Pittsburgh. It changed to a slightly more comedic movie, and the cop was then from Detroit. Of course, when you think of humor, you think Mickey Rourke. He yep. was the first Axwell Foley. Uh, he left, and Cy Stallone was offered the role. So he said, yeah, and rewrote the whole fucking thing and back into an action movie about a guy named Axel Cobretti. Uh, unfortunately for, for him... 
uh, seems like the uh, like a game of chicken between a Lamborghini and a freight train were deemed too expensive to film. So Stallone <laughs> no, no, said, nothing says Beverly Hills like a freight track running through it. <laughs> so they St- don't even want a fucking subway going through that city, let alone a freight train. Yeah. So Stallone said, "Slyanara." <laughs> uh, they considered Richard Pryor, Al Pacino, and James Caan for the role, but ultimately went for the cheap at the time upstart Eddie Murphy. This role would make him a star, spawning two, soon to be three, I believe, sequels. Uh, there was going to be a TV show for a while. Axel's kid or nephew is a new officer, and Eddie may or may not have had a cameo. Depending on his mood <laughs> on the day, he's supposed to show up. Turns out it's not happening at all, so they just rebooted Lethal Weapon instead. Okay, so so I'll just talk about the song real quickly. Uh, so The Heat Is On was written by Harold Faltermeyer, who also did Axel F., and Keith Force, Forcey. Uh, they needed a big-time star to sing it. They got Glenn Fry. Uh, <laughs> Fry said he didn't think he'd get the song because the movie had an urban feel. Uh, not his quote, but a, but a summary of what he was saying. Uh, but when he heard the temp track, it was sort of like a Huey Lewis song, which was something he could do. Hey, I could do that. So he got paid 15 grand and killed it. Uh, it was his biggest solo hit, reaching number two. Yeah, now that you mention it, I can, you can really hear that Huey Lewis chug in the rhythm section. Mm-hmm. Oh. In, con- in conclusion, oh. fuck <laughs> Beverly Hills. All you fucks are first in the guillotine when the revolution happens. So, but just random story. When I when I listened to this on Spotify, I had every song called "Heat Is On" up, and it went to this one next. And I was like, "What the fuck is this?" This is it's from Miss Saigon. It's about a bunch of horny soldiers. All right, you gotta listen to this song because when Broadway does heterosexual horny dudes, it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ocean City Defender, thanks for the bed. Oh, fuck, plug hole. Uh, the bumpers were by Werewolf. Werewolf. We've heard from them before, they're great. Chris Gray and Peter James are W-E-R-E-W-I-L-F, a recording project based out of Problem House Studios in Portland, Oregon. Follow Chris on Twitter and Instagram at Poopin' at Work. And follow Pete at Comic Pete. Cosmic, Cosmic Pete. Pete. He's not that funny, he's spacey. Uh, booking requests for a sexy live music or studio time should be directed to Problem Hoves. <laughs> it's house with a V instead of a U at gmail.com. The Greek U. Uh, Patreon, here we go. Oh, we here some, it is. We got some nicknames here. All right, here we go. <laughs> we got Sean Double Flush McNiff. Uh, Max, sure, I'll take a breath, Mitt Dawson. Michael, nothing but chaps galasso. Oh, wait. Fun fact, Mac, Max Dawson, he is a Survivor contestant. Ah, uh, you probably can't take a breathman out there. No. It's going to be a joke. It's, they're going to give him, like, a turtle turd or something. <laughs> uh, let's see. Eric, the sophisticated plumber, Levine. Uh, wait, did you... I'm sorry. Did you miss Michael, nothing but no, chaps galasso? No, I, I okay. sa- I'll say it again. Michael, nothing but chaps galasso. Uh... <laughs> Skip to my Lou Nuccio. <laughs> uh, Bill Jean Short Storts. <laughs> and Clifton Cafeteria Food Stone. A reference to LA's iconic Clifton Cafeteria. Yeah, visit it sometime. Uh, they redid it. It's remodeled. It's elaborate. Uh, how are you doing over there, Dave? Classic iTunes review from uh, February of 2016 from Debbie Hughes 08. 
Um, Debbie Hughes writes, uh, I laughed all the way through episode one and two. Episode three was pretty good, but episode four, maybe the worst half hour of podcasting I've ever put myself through. Sophomoric, half-baked, and totally void of laughs. Well, well it was Debbie. kind of sophomoric and half-baked. That was our, I think that was our first bad review. Mm-hmm. And didn't you well, give us Debbie, didn't you I'm sorry didn't you didn't like it, but the show was an hour long and it seems like you only heard the first half. I'm sure if you go back and listen to the second half, you'll see why it's ranked in our top ten of all time based on the number of listens. Yes, chronological and I hope order. you'll continue to listen because the show wouldn't be the same without you. You take care, Debbie. Um, I, wa- I want to say that I'm pretty sure she that was our first bad review, and then she gave us four stars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> still, okay. still a four-star review. <laughs> and uh, Brian Podolsky writes, Keep the fire. We shall work. We shall. We sure. We sure will, Brian. But hey, you do us a favor. You keep that fire, too. Thanks, pal. And the rest of our listeners should head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It helps us generate buzz and makes for a better show. As does Dave being in town. Hurry up and wrap that movie up, Dave. We miss you. Would you? Yeah. Would you get done with your dream job already? Uh, I wouldn't call it a dream yeah, job. Yeah, I think it's but, turned um, into a dream job. Yeah. I'll tell you about it off there. Bye. Uh oh. All right. This is a song I'm bringing back from Hunter's New Wop episode. Uh, I shouted out my Fotown genre then, and you can easily hear those parameters in the groove here. You got chanking guitar and that rolling bass line. I've been it's able fine to go young cannibals years without thing. hearing. I've been able to go 15 years without hearing fine young cannibals, and now I'm listening to twice in as many months. <laughs> and it's the same song, the boot. Yep. And not even their hit. No, this was a hit. Oh, this was a number one hit. It was the follow-up to their previous number one hit. Oh. She drives me crazy. Well, that but one is her back-to-back number one. Oh, that well, that one, that other one's a more number one. It's yeah, it's their signature song. Um, so one thing we didn't discuss the first time around on this song is how unintelligible lead singer Roland Gift's vocals can be, uh, uh, sometimes. Like, if you listen to the outro on this song, where he's kind of improvising, he's just saying, And his bandmates just keep on in the background with these very well-enunciated, And in the third verse of this song, also, he pronounces the word that as, and he also got some good BG in there too. Yeah, he, yeah, he's a very good falsetto singer, much like the BG. He cops a little bit of that style. Um, Roland had a very interesting career. Uh, prior to hitting the big time, he worked as a male stripper. Uh, and as Hunter said in the previous, how do you episode, how do you strip male? Is that like taking an envelope, taking it out of the envelopes? Yeah, you get those letter openers. Oh, and, okay, yeah. Good job. Yeah. Or Steve. Uh, he also played sax in the whole-based ska band Acrylics, which has a funky spelling. Uh, there's virtually no vowels. It's all like Ys and Ks and a Z on the end. Uh, Roland was also an actor. He had good-sized role in the 1987 movie Sammy and Rosie Get Laid and also 1989 Scandal, which is about the Profumo affair, a famous, in Britain, political this sex scandal. This is where Steve could use an editor. I need to describe the roles that... Okay, okay, continue. Like, he's sexy, basically. Okay. He's in a movie about getting laid. Okay, he's on. in a movie about a sex scandal. He was and also he was named one of People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People so he's in 1989. Fine. He's the fine and Steve, young. Steve, what you just did was called editing. 
Yeah, anyway, continue, continue, Steve. No, that was actually just getting everything in, explaining how it all tied together. Uh, and then summarizing it in a concise way. Dave! Steve, nobody gives a shit. You're just prolonging the episode. <laughs> so... Uh, Roland took a break to become a rock star, and then he resumed his acting career uh, in the Highlander TV series, where he played the villain Xavier St. Cloud. Which I didn't know. And I yeah, and the, the band too. never ended up releasing another album. Who needs music when you can get your creative juices out on the Highlander TV show? Was Christopher Lambert a part of that? Uh, I think he was in the pilot, and I think spatterings of other episodes. Uh, the main, saying good, got good. The main guy was English. Uh, his name was like Adrian or Rupert or something, and he and he played the cousin of the Lam- Lambert, Lambert character. Yeah. So, good thing actually debuted in a movie as well, uh, two years before it appeared on a Fine Young Cannibals album. Um, the excuse me. The band had been featured in the Barry Levinson movie Tin Men, which was set in the 60s, and it featured several compositions written in a period-appropriate style, including this Fotown gem. Hey, you guys ever experienced Deja Vu? Sort of, but it's more like I always think songs are about jizz, and this song is no exception. (laughs) Yeah, I can hear it in this one, too. You had to know this one was coming if you've been paying attention to what these songs sound like. This was on one of our earliest Yacht or Nyat episodes, and at the time I said it wasn't Yacht Rock because it sounded more like Motown in space, and that makes it excellent early 80s Fotown with a little bit of twist on the classic blueprint. This is Hollow Notes with Maneater. Yeah, it was a number one song, everybody. Yeah, it was actually their biggest hit. <laughs> right. It was their biggest hit. It spent four weeks at number one longer than any of their other singles. Um... Oates actually wrote the first draft of this as a reggae song. Uh, and then Hall decided they should change the beat to this Fotown groove. Uh, of course Oates did. It's why they called John Bad Instincts Oates. Yeah, that'll be his Patreon nickname yeah. when he starts uh, supporting the show. I don't think I don't think you mentioned this, but do you think the Motown sound, that chunk guitar, was kind of the basis? Chank. Chank guitar was kind of the ba- uh, basis for maybe like uh, a reggae or dance hall? Well, I think, I, like, if you listen to, like, early ska from Jamaica, from, like, the late 50s, early 60s, you know, it's it, there's that definite, you know, they're, they're playing on the upbeat. Yeah. But it's not quite as, like, clipped okay. as this. This is very, like, very quick. I just, I just find it interesting that this could go from a, a reggae song to a Motown song. Well, you know what this is? This is also a sultry hit, if you listen uh, to it. Sax, oh, yeah. The Night, Sexual Dangers, the saxophone again. I, I blew it. Like, Maneater's a sultry hit. It's, it's not Yacht Rock, though. No. Soft Rock covers band in captain's hats. Listen to me, not Yacht Rock song. And f- fun fact, the woman the lyrics are about is actually a metaphor for New York City in the 80s. Oh, a, the city? city? Yep. Sultry. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, another fun fact... The original chorus had another rhyming line after She's a Maneater. Uh, Sarah Allen told Daryl to take that one out and just let it hang on She's a Maneater. And Daryl has since forgotten what it was. My theory is that it was She's a Maneater and an Ass Beater because it was secretly about S&M. That's I, what I think. I think uh, the original lyric was she She's a Walk Streeter. And then Sarah reminded him that prostitutes are actually called street walkers. And then he was embarrassed, so he cut it. Actually, I read uh, it was uh, she's a space heater. 
Well, that she would, keeps a real that warm would, at night. <laughs> see? That would fit my Motown in space uh, characterization. Uh... I just Daryl Hall's shadow already looms so large of this genre. I had to get him in with one. Uh, it makes sense that he came up with one of the prototypical songs in it because it's got that classic "You Can't Hurry Love" rhythm, but it's slowed down. It's set in this slick, weird, synthetic, heavy uh, '80s production. And then you know, every time the verse kicks in, the guitar starts up chanking again, and it's it's quintessential uh, folk town. Also, you get the proper English pronunciation of Jaguar. You took my line. I know, because Dave didn't say anything yet, and I wanted to. I wanted to set him up. Yeah, he says Jaguar. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's wonderful, Dave. You still there? Yeah. Sorry, I went and got a drink. What did I miss? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> Three. No, oh, same, same fucking song. I got, this I is got, the point. I'm like, fuck. I got two punk bands in one episode. Dave, you're slacking. Hey, I had two punk episode or punk songs in that my last episode. Yeah, Dave is slacking. Yeah, and I'll easily give you two punk bands, but certainly not two punk songs. No, just listen. Listen to the tremendous diversity that's possible within that punk rock universe. Like, not everything has to sound like fourth-rate Ramones ripoffs. Some of oh, it can I'm sound aware. like a first-rate Motown ripoff. Yeah, I love this song. I've always loved this song. Yeah, this is The Jam with Town Called Malice. Uh, the Jam were one of the UK's big four punk bands, along with the Sex Pistols, the Clash, and the Buzzcocks. Okay, okay, not the Picnits, uh, but I'd put the Damned above the Jam. And probably Any day. And probably the Buzzcocks. Here's the thing, it's though. The, the Damned four. weren't punk for that long. I know. They but, turned goth pretty quickly. But is the big four really a thing? Or is that In something fresh it is, so I feel <laughs> like it's... Uh, there right. must be a big four of British punk. Yeah, I think that... I think... I think it would be the big three, and it's the Sex Pistols, the Clash, and the Damned. Mm. Dave? Buzzcocks... Buzzcocks were pretty big. Yeah. Uh, the Jam wasn't... Up with those guys, and I think. You're but all in the UK, they were. Skins. Can we please stop having conversations about UK punk? I'm so bored when you guys talk about punk rock, and especially UK but, punk. But UK punk was the good stuff. Yeah, they made stuff like this. Yeah, uh, the Anyways, jam. Really the jam great. was huge in the UK because, like, their whole frame of reference was the UK. They didn't cross over as much in America. They were heavily influenced by this this mod subculture in Britain from the '60s. Uh, those the most popular bands there were the Small Faces and the early Who in their maximum R and B phase. Ugh. Here's an incredibly brief description that of who was, mods. That, were. that was about the Who, not not your paragraph. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mods think were getting grumpy. JD doesn't like the Who now. No, no, you, don't worry about it. Let me Go descri- ahead, Steve. I describe who mods were. They're snazzy dressers in tailored suits who took a lot of speed so they could stay up all night dancing to American jazz and R and B, and then ride home in the morning on their Vespas. So, Dave, if you're looking for a new identity in early middle age, you want you might want to play around with this and, and also start taking speed. Well, he does have his Vespa. Vespa, I'm I'm comfortable being a rocker. Oh, rockers and mods used to get in fights. Okay, hold on. You you can't. If you're looking for a new image, I'm willing to try again. No, I'm not going to be a mod. Hold on, Dave. You can't just say, aside from my scooter, (laughs) I'm a rocker. That's like exactly the dividing line. Um, So, but own it. It's cool that you've gone a bit mod in your older years. Yeah, I also own like 30 suits, and everybody knows that I love jam. I like peanut butter better. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was saying part of the reason the jam never hit in America 
so many of their signifier, like all this mod stuff and like the heavy accent in Paul Weller's lyrics and their observations on contemporary English society, like they just don't translate very well, even though their music is very catchy and very good. But uh, Paul Weller, uh, he, he ended up being one of the godfathers, or the modfather, as the British press dubbed him, uh, of the 1990s Britpop movement. And at that time, he resurrected his solo career as this prolific singer-songwriter that British dads could also enjoy. I enjoy him, too! Boy. Okay, Dad, shut up. Uh, I have a confession to make, also. Uh-oh. Uh, I love the good. jam. They oh. made a shit ton of great music. Paul Weller is one of the most ambitious lyricists of the punk era. I can't understand more than half of what he's singing. And it's not just because of his accent. The punk caliber production on a lot of these records does not exactly push his vocals immediately up front. Well, Steve, I got a genre for you that's coming up that the jam is a huge, giant star of. Fantastic. Do you, uh, you want to tease it or you just want to leave that hanging? Oh, holy shit. Let's keep just keep teasing each other's uh, genres and episodes. Yeah, I'm gonna get grumpy about this one. Oh, uh, this is great. Most Fotown songs are tend to be one-off singles, but in 2008, Raphael Sadiq put together a full-fledged Fotown album called The Way I See It. Built a house of lies. And if you only buy one item off this week's episode, make it that album because it is fantastic despite what grumpy old Hunter's saying. It is a kaleidoscope of references to classic Motown songs and other 60s soul music, but it's more about groove and feel than just flat out ripping them off. It was nominated for three Grammys, including Best R&B Album, made the top 20 on the album chart, probably could have made up the entirety of this countdown. I like Raphael Sadiq. He's pretty awesome. It's great to listen to. He's always interesting. And he's a KCRW darling. Oh, I bet he is. For, yeah. your, fa- for your fans in Australia, that's a hipster public radio station in Los Angeles known for breeding Hollywood music supervisors. They're hired for their hip, cool, interesting tastemaker ears, only to be forced by Hollywood producers to put on an overplayed classic rock song about running when, in, when a character in the movie is running. Yeah. Yeah, I think we talked a little... I think I might have ranted about this a little bit, like... It, Forrest, it, for, it, um, Robert's, every single Robert Zemeckis yeah. movie, other than Back to the Future, you listen to every one of his music cues is so. It's, but I'm okay. Anyway, I'm, sorry, it's on the nose. Yeah, yeah it's too on the nose. Right, get more on the nose and skin. Yeah. Hey oh. <coughs> so this song is called "Love That Girl." Uh, it's one of many, many, many Motown-sounding songs in this album. Uh, Raphael Sadiq started out as Raphael Wiggins. Raphael was also an adopted name. I think it was Charles. Was he? His birth name was Charles Wiggins. He made himself uh, into Raphael. He was the bassist and co-lead singer of the 80s, 90s R&B group Tony, Tony, Tony. And when he embarked on a solo career, he changed his last name to Sadiq, which is Arabic for man of his word. Not because he'd converted to Islam, just because he liked the way it sounded and wanted his own identity outside of his former group. Yeah, hey, what's in a name? I'll just change it all willy-nilly. Who yeah. cares? If he's a man of his word, why did he lie to us all those years and tell us his name was Tony? Yeah, it's a house of lies this man has built on. <laughs> so bad. I think it's funny that he was trying to look for, uh, like, independence outside of Tony, 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 because when I hear... Raphael Wiggins, all I think of is Tony, Tony, Tony. <laughs> it's probably a good call on his part. Uh, Raphael, when he was Charles, he started playing bass at age six, 
Got his big career break by winning the bass player slot in Sheila E.'s backing band, which let him go on the road opening for Prince. I think it was on the parade tour around 86. And then after he returned home to Oakland, he formed Tony, Tony, Tony with his brother and his cousin, and they recorded four fairly acclaimed albums together. Well, were those two guys at least actual Tonys? No, their names are Dwayne and Timothy. Uh, what? This... This does not feel good. Get it off your chest, brother. I know it feels good. No, it does not feel good. No, it feels I've been, good. I've been lied to my whole life. Now I don't believe that Tony can spell be spelled in any other way but T-O-N-Y. <laughs> There's no alternate spellings. It's all a lie. And it does not feel good. So before Raphael did this project, uh, he released a couple solo albums. He also worked extensively behind the scenes as a producer and a songwriter. Uh, his biggest success was D'Angelo's R&B, big, like big R&B smash, untitled subtitle, How Does It Feel, from 2000. Which is weird because if you're going to get a, a subtitle to an untitled song, you may as well just title it as the <laughs> subtitle. But that's, that's just me. But that's did you just see, me. Did you see D'Angelo without a shirt on in that video? That guy can call a song whatever he wants. What a babe. Okay, guys, I'm th- I've been thinking about this. Uh, Steve said that he, he uh, went on tour with Prince. Maybe Prince named him all Tony, Tony, Tony. Because you know how he likes to name people things? Yeah, like Carmen Electra. So somebody fact check that me, uh, fact check that and get to me, and uh, uh, maybe I'll forgive him. But right now I'm, I'm mad. We're mad at Raphael Sadiq. I'm not. Finally. One of us has made it possible to say on this podcast the words, Number one is Billy Ocean, and it's about goddamn time. Shame on all of us. But the Caribbean Queen would have been my number one on my genre songs with sloppily pronounced titles. <laughs> if we wanted to put Billy Ocean in number one before, maybe we could have done a genre called Top Ten Songs from Jewel of the Nile. But I don't, I don't really see another way. <laughs> uh, Dave, hey, Dave, your, your uh, show's next. Maybe some DeVito song burritos, huh? <laughs> I don't know what that means. I'll do a touch by a DeVito genre. Hey, <laughs> he was in Jewel of the Nile, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, but still, yeah. I don't understand. I don't know what DeVito song burrito uh, like. Songs from Danny DeVito movies. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> songs are wrapped up in Danny wait, DeVito wait, movies. Wait, 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 okay. wait a minute. Living DeVito Loca. <laughs> Oh, I think what JD just said, songs wrapped up in, in yeah. Danny DeVito movies. So anyway, this song is called Love Really Hurts Without You. It's Billy's very first hit all the way back in 1976. It's really fucking good. 1976, this is probably the first Motown song, too. It's just it's just far enough away from Motown to be a, a revival. Yeah, Ching. exactly. Ching. Chunk, ching. I said, yep. It's, it's got that. It's clink, chink, 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 and it totally, chink. it totally yeah, rips careful, off. Careful. Yeah. Uh, and it totally, in addition to the chink and guitar, it totally rips off that rolling piano line from uh, "I Can't Help Myself" by the Four Tops. You can but barely it, hear it. Yeah, it's really good. It's uh, it's very, it's instantly memorable and infectiously danceable, and it's really, it's really, really, ah, I love it. Uh, this hit number two in the UK, number 22 in the US, and it's also the only one of his US hits to not hurt, or sorry, to not chart on the R&B side because it lost out to a competing cover by Alex Brown. You know, I just, just thinking about this, uh, 
I really like it when Steve yells at us during his. He's so excited for his yeah. own episodes, he yells at us through yeah. yeah, it's really. It's, ah! It's, ah, it's so good. Ah! This song is so good. Billy Ocean. I'm going to talk about the origins of Billy Ocean. He was born in Trinidad. Son of a Caribbean queen. Yep. <laughs> Moved to England with his family around age 7 or 10. It was conflicting accounts. Started pursuing a singing career around age 19. And it took him seven years of trying, during which time he would sing on sessions and demos during the day. Then he worked at an automobile plant on the night shift. So don't quit, assholes. Unless you're terrible at what you do, then by all means quit. But Billy Ocean is not terrible at what he does. He was also in a rock band called Scorched Earth. Oh, that's you ever heard kind that? of the... You can find that on YouTube. It's kind of the opposite of Billy Ocean. Some, some, someone someday is going to say about us, they podcasted for 20 years before they got were invited to manage the robot car factory. Yeah. Which, oh, those are the jobs of the future. I, I, that doesn't sound that bad. I, I, have, I have no idea what I'm going to do when I'm know. older. Tell me about it. I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna go as dark as I originally wrote the rest of that. Song. Okay. Move on. Uh, so Billy, Billy had a couple other decent-sized hits in the UK within the next year after this one. There was another real faux towny one called "Red Light Means Danger." But after that, he kind of dropped off the map for another seven years. Didn't have any other major successes until 1984, when Caribbean Queen went to number one in the U.S., which kicked off his run as one of Britain's most successful R&B artists during the 80s. So once again, if you're this fucking good at stuff, don't quit. And again, if you're not, give up. You're wasting all of our time. I am looking at you, guy in the Shorebird restaurant and beach bar in Waikiki. You found a way to make Jimmy Buffett sound worse. Shame on you. <laughs> what's, what's great, Dave, is now this song is going to be in your head instead of Jimmy Buffett, and you will never get it out because it's amazing. It came on at a goddamn sushi restaurant last night. I'm at one of the best restaurants on the island, and fucking Jimmy Buffett comes on. But to be fair, it was followed up with Gordon Lightfoot, so it wasn't a total loss. Sorry. Uh, Good song. What didn't make the list, Dave? Uh, I would have included Sheena Easton's... What? Hold on. I'm going to play us out with Rod Stewart's piece of pandering yuppie nostalgia, the Motown song. All right, Dave, go ahead. Well, I would have included Sheena Easton's Midnight Train. You mean Morning Train? With it. In fact, this list would have been utterly perfect for them, but I guess they just weren't close enough sound-wise. Also, 12 songs is just insane. I'm a lunatic for even thinking it. Uh, I wanted to make this list 12 songs, and I loved them all so much. I think it would. this would have been fun if we included like something like, say, uh, the Four Tops 80s album, like people who were Motown guys that grew up and then occasionally tried to recreate that sound with a very faux sound. Um, I think I might have a genre for that. Oh, cool. All right. I'd recommend Ready for Love off their 85 album Magic, Four Tops. My wife had the same idea with Aretha Franklin's Freeway of Love, where a song by a Motowner comes out years later to recreate the classic sound, but I guess she's she not a Motowner. Nope. Uh, how about uh, Jim Belushi Sushi? You think Jimmy Buffett would play that song? Belushi and some sushi on Saturday Night Live. That's, yeah. That's an yeah, absolute they, Jimmy Buffett song. Belushi and Buffett would go together hand in hand. <laughs> okay, uh, so how about the song Los, Lobo, uh, Los Lobos with the song Set Me Free, Rosalie? That's a really good one. I it considered is, that one strongly. It would have been nice to hear Los Lobos instead of retreading your war against New Wop. <laughs> 
Uh, I also want to shout out the last two songs off this list. Billy Joel's Tell Her About It, which almost made it, but A, he's Billy Joel, and B, he said in an interview he thought it sounded more like Tony Orlando and Dawn. Um, so who am I to argue yeah, with Billy Joel? That was only one. He's got one more. Oh, okay. And then Elvis Costello's High Fidelity from the album Get Happy, which has a bunch of Fotown sounding stuff. Check it out. Messing with the bunny ears, wasting away the years, sharing my evening with Belushi and Sushi. Belushi and beers. No, it has to be solidified with. You were at a sushi restaurant, Dave. We were Dave. referencing your thing. Dave, what's next time? Well, I was going to do Undercover Clash, but now I'm thinking about this DeVito idea. You guys have an opinion? Undercover Clash versus Leave It, Livin' DeVito Loca? Hey, you never know. This is the first time we have no idea what the next episode is going to be. But it'll be a good one. Well, we got we got time to figure it out. Yeah. But with this really, every other week schedule. I think you're really wasting the term song burritos. <laughs> well, think about it. Find this week's Photon playlist by following GDRS on Spotify. Go to YachtRock.com to buy t-shirts and stuff. Send questions via Twitter at YachtRock. Follow JD at JD Rizna. Follow Hollywood Steve at Hollywood Steve H. Follow David David B underscore B underscore Lions. Follow Hunter at Hunter Stare. All right, stop. Like uh, Yacht Rock on Facebook. Oh Follow Beyond Rock on Instagram. Rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, uh, Thank you to Werewolf for sending in the bumpers. Themes by Rob Crow and Mark Rivers, too. Recorded today by Matt Brousseau. And thanks to Feral Audio, feralaudio.com. What, Hunter? Check out podcasts, please. At feralaudio.com. Oh. Love this song. The cartoon video from the 90s. Was MC Scat Cat in this? Probably.